Welcome to worship. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, before we go into our worship service, let me just say two brief things. The first is that we're welcoming uh, Mr. Owen Halbach to our church this evening for the evening message, if you're able to make that. Um, our youth are meeting at the usual time across the street in the Family Life Building. And if you haven't already, mark your calendar for the two events on the back of your bulletin, uh, one for our children on June 19th, and then our installation service for Pastor Heath Cross on June 25th in the evening worship time. God has brought us here to worship. He has invited us to worship. So would you take a few moments to ask God to help you worship him, uh, to calm your hearts and your minds to do that as the music plays. We'll do that now. Please stand for our call to worship. This morning our call to worship comes from Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let us now join our voices and praise the Lord with hymn number 44, How Great Thou Art.
Pray with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings, and we love to sing praises to you. We rejoice in you, our Maker. We exalt you, our King. We praise your name, for you delight in your people. We do not deserve to come into the presence of the holy God of the universe, but you have crowned the humble with victory. You have lifted up those who are bowed down. You have clothed us in your righteousness. We come before you with confidence, not based on ourselves, but based only on your love for us. And now, dear Father, we pray together the prayer our Lord Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Written about 300 years after the birth of Christ, the Apostles' Creed summarizes our foundational Christian beliefs. So I ask you Christians here today, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered unto Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Uh, over the last few days, if you're sort of part of the Presbyterian world or Reformed world, you have heard of the um, deaths of Stephen Smallman, of Harry Reeder, and of Tim Keller. Um, right now, we're going through our communicants class, and the workbook we're using is actually written by Stephen Smallman. Uh, many of you know and have benefited from the ministry of Harry Reader. Uh, since I'm not from the South, uh, I don't know him or his ministry very well, but I know many here do. Uh, Tim Keller, for me, uh, was really foundational to uh, uh, when I first moved to Washington, D.C. back around 2011. Uh, Tim Keller was sort of who was my guiding uh, theological figure at the time. He was really the reason I uh, knew about the PCA and was the reason I uh, joined a PCA church, and so I'm very thankful for him and for his ministry. And I couldn't help but think of the deaths of Moses and Joshua, who were so important to God's people, and when they died, they passed the mantle of leadership to the next generation. And right now, it kind of feels that way in the Presbyterian world. Who will take up the mantle of leadership after these great figures of the faith? And after Moses died, there was mourning in the land for 30 days. And I'm sure Joshua wondered, who came after Moses, you know, would God be with me? like he was with Moses. Would God be faithful to us now that Moses was gone? And God said to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And I want to read Joshua's last message to his people, to the people of God before he died. And then I want to have a time of prayer. After serving the Lord faithfully for almost a hundred years, he said this in Joshua 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity, sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, 
Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Just as Joshua knew the faithfulness of God, these men who I mentioned, Stephen Smallman, Harry Reeder, Tim Keller, they followed the same lead. They served God faithfully in, in very different places, very different times and contexts. They served the Lord faithfully. And after the death of Joshua, the people asked of the Lord, Who shall go up first? Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? This is the question I've been asking myself, a similar question, which is who will be the ones to take the mantle, to take the baton, the torch, and to serve God faithfully in the next generation? And God promises that just as he was with Moses and Joshua and all of God's people afterwards, he says, so I will be with you. So I'd like to take a moment to pray, and this would be part of, this will be part of my prayer, that God would continue to raise up people for his name that would lead faithfully in obedience. So let's pray together. Father, you are holy, you are loving, and you are faithful to each one of us, your people. You've shown your faithfulness to us again and again by giving us faithful people to point us back to you when we have weak faith, when we doubt, when we're discouraged and we're troubled, when we're confused. And you tell us in your word, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Lord, you are with us wherever we go by your Spirit whom your son Jesus sent to us after he has ascended, risen from the grave. You give us comfort and strength. You give us courage and wisdom to obey your word. And we pray that you would make us faithful and courageous people, that you would give us the fragrance of your grace so that as we live and work, the people around us would come to you that they would see your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up godly people in this church, First Presbyterian Church, who would follow you wholeheartedly in public as well as in private. God, I pray you would make each one of us hungry for your word, that you would give us joy that is unstoppable. Lord, would you do these things? Would you comfort the families of these men that I have mentioned as they grieve? Would you comfort those who are friends and who have benefited from their ministry, who have known them as well? God, we are thankful for them, and we know that they died in the hope of the resurrection and that they are with you in spirit right now in fellowship with you. Lord Jesus, we have a few women in our church who are carrying children knit together by the word of your power, and we pray you would continue to give them strength and that you would remind them as they look forward to the day uh, when their child is born, that you would remind them that you are with them in the pain and in the mystery and in the silence. Lord God, we pray you would continue to lead this church by your spirit and that you would bless us this morning as we hear your word as we sing your word. Would you speak to our hearts and to our minds and help us to hear and see you clearly. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a moment now to give our tithes and offerings, and as God has given to us, we respond in faith by giving back to him and his kingdom work. So if you are able and willing, uh, this is a time to give. We'll do that now.
Please pray with me. God, you've promised that wherever we go, you will be with us. You will be with your church now and forever. And as we walk with you, you have called us to obedience. You have called us to give of our time, of our energy, and of our money. So Lord, would you cause us to desire more and more to give to your kingdom work, and that as we give, we would do so not begrudgingly, but willingly, um, with great hope and expectation of what you will do with these tithes and offerings. So we thank you for this time to give, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue to worship with hymn number 708, which is, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Let's continue worshiping together. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 11. Mark chapter 8. Starting at verse 11, as you turn there, uh, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark, and this really is the end of the first half of Mark. This is the hinge point of the rest of the Gospel of Mark, and it's literally the middle of Mark. And up to this point, Jesus has been building an identity. He has been guarding his identity, telling people to be quiet, to not tell others about his miracles, and on and on. And soon after this passage, that will stop because he is going to the cross. And at the cross, we see the full identity of Jesus revealed. Soon there will be no more secrecy. And so we'll see in this passage just how important it is to see Jesus clearly for who he is. Let's read from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 11. This is God's word. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. 
And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by hand, by the hand, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me for one moment. God, this passage is all about seeing you clearly. Would you help us to see you clearly through your word? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our text has three parts to it, and we're going to focus on two of them this morning. And I'll get to that in a second. Just after Jesus is sighing deeply, which means he has this intense emotion about the faithlessness, about the disbelief of the Pharisees, he draws a connection of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is their unbelief, to the disciples. So he makes this connection between the Pharisees' unbelief and to the disciples with the bread and the yeast. And in the boat, the disciples think he's just talking about bread. And it's almost, well, it is to me, it's comical how clearly the disciples don't understand what Jesus is teaching them or what he's talking about. And Jesus says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? This teaching on the boat leads directly into this story of Jesus healing the blind man. And there's a strong connection here that I want to talk about. So we'll look at three things. We're going to look at the first point, which is having eyes but failing to see. We're going to look at what causes that. And then we're going to look at what cures that. So having eyes but failing to see, what causes it and what cures it. I want to start out with a brief story about having eyes but failing to see. It's just sort of like that. Um, I love music. I know many of you do. Uh, I love bass. So if there's not a subwoofer present, it's really lacking to me. Um, but it all, wasn't always this way. When I lived in Virginia for a year, um, back around 2011, I lived in the basement of a family that was giving me really cheap rent. And when I l- moved out of their house, they gave me these speakers from their garage that were uh, probably four or five feet tall. And they had this triangular shape where there were speakers on sort of both sides of the triangle. And they were old looking and I at the time didn't know if these sounded good or not because they looked old I just thought these probably don't sound great which of course is naive and arrogant Um, finally when I moved into my new house in DC I hooked the speakers up and of course they sounded amazing they sounded incredible and in fact the speakers themselves had a built-in way of they were so big that they had their own bass that just sounded amazing. It sounded warm and comforting. And the details that were coming out of the speakers and the music that I, that I had heard a thousand times 
were incredible. I was literally hearing instruments that I had never heard before in songs that I had known for my whole life. I was hearing notes and voices and just different things, different layers to my favorite music. And at that moment, speakers became very important to me. I enjoy great sounding speakers and music, music that's really loud. And so now I was really, I, th- I thought before I had these speakers, I, was, I could hear music. I liked music, but I wasn't really hearing for real. I was now with these speakers listening for the first time. The disciples similarly had eyes, but they couldn't actually see. They could see, but they couldn't see. And Jesus wants people to see him. Jesus wants his disciples to know him and to comprehend who he is clearly. And we see in this story that faith and understanding go hand in hand. Faith and understanding. Jesus is not about blind faith. Blind faith without understanding leads to unbelief. It leads to hardness of heart, as we see in our passage. The Pharisees want a sign from heaven. When Jesus compares the Pharisees to yeast, all the disciples hear is that Jesus is talking about bread. But I found it interesting that the the disciples are not rebuked for not believing. The disciples are rebuked for not comprehending, rebuked for not understanding and seeing Jesus clearly. Many people today, in our day, believe Christians are unthinking or they haven't rigorously tested scripture to see if it's actually accurate and could be true. Uh, You may be here, young person or, or old, doesn't really matter, and you might look at the people around you, maybe your parents or other people who call themselves Christians, and you think they're just blind followers. They just come to church and they say they believe and they don't really think about their faith very much. Or you might see examples on TV, people who call themselves Christians, and yet when you watch their life play out on the screen, there's obvious inconsistencies from what they say they believe and how they live. What we find in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus does everything in his power to take people from blind faith into true understanding. He desires, Jesus came to earth to bring clarity and understanding, not to call people to follow him blindly. Blind faith is weak faith, and it can even lead to unbelief unless God intervenes. So we see this story with Jesus. He deals with the blind man the way he does to give the disciples a picture of themselves. It might not be readily apparent when you read this story once over, but Jesus is healing this man in such a way that it would teach the disciples about their state of being, their faith. And, but we know that the blind man's healing, it's, it, it's historical. It actually happened, but it's also a parable, a lesson that Jesus uses. We know that Jesus could have healed him instantly. The two-stage healing wasn't because Jesus didn't have enough power or or whatever. We know Jesus can raise the dead with, with a word. He doesn't even need a word, but he has done that already in the Gospel of Mark. The blind man, after being partially healed, is neither blind nor can he see clearly. He's not blind but he can't really see. And that's where we're going to camp out a little bit. This is exactly what's happening with the disciples. They have eyes, but they don't see Jesus clearly. They hear his teaching about unbelief, about being persuaded by the Pharisees, and all they hear is Jesus is talking about bread. They can't see clearly. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a series of sermons that was made into a book called Spiritual Depression. 
And he argues that this truth that I just shared with you is the same for people today. That Christians and non-Christians are often in a state of seeing but not really seeing. Seeing but not seeing clearly. And I'm going to borrow heavily from his teaching on this. His, his goal in that book, by the way, which I recommend, is to make, and this was written uh, a while ago, at le- I think uh, at least 100 years ago, oh, uh, maybe less, but a while ago. He, uh, his goal in this book is to take spiritually depressed people and to make them spiritually happy. He literally says, I, just, I want you to be happy in knowing Jesus. It's kind of jarring to hear that today because we psychologize, you know, we don't want Christians just to be happy, of course. But he is saying a deep, abiding, spiritual happiness in Christ. And when he talks about this passage, he says this, this is a quote, he says, Some Christians seem to know enough about Christianity to spoil their enjoyment of the world, and yet they do not know enough to feel happy about themselves or Jesus. They see and yet they do not see. They are neither hot nor cold. And in his teaching on this passage, I just I found it really helpful and applicable to us today. He says some Christians think they can see when in fact they don't. And they can see enough, but they only see enough to be unhappy. They don't see a clear picture. Other people, he says, see that everything in the world is wrong, but they don't yet see that Christianity and Christ are right. They're cynics, and they're often, it often leads them to despair. And then he says, many people come to see that Jesus is somehow the Savior, that he is somehow loving and gracious, and yet they don't actually see the full picture, the full compassionate Jesus who suffers and goes to the cross for sinners. The Jesus who must be hung in our place so that the wrath of God against our sin would be satisfied. This is seeing the Jesus of the Bible clearly, the Jesus of the entire Bible, not just the Jesus that we want to see ourselves. So the condition is seeing but not seeing. And unbelievers, of course, can be in this camp. Believers can be in this camp. You might be in this sort of, you might have this condition for a season, or you might be someone who knows this type of living and faith that it's happened often in your life. What causes this condition, as Lloyd-Jones would say? He, he points out a few things, and there's, there's so many more applications to this text, but I'll, I'll name a few of the things that he points out. He says, how do people come to a place of seeing and not seeing? A few of the things he mentions. Uh, some people just don't like clear-cut definitions. They don't like clarity or certainty. Clarity and certainty about the Bible is offensive because necessarily it blocks other people and beliefs out. He says the most comfortable type of religion is always a vague religion. When you have a vague Christianity, you might think that this is the best type where you don't have to fully commit to all of the doctrines of Scripture, but you can commit to the ones that you like. This is seeing but not seeing. Some people never fully accept the authority of Scripture. Another way of kind of liking Christianity, but not fully seeing the full picture. They don't submit to the Scriptures. Tim Keller often said that Scripture is meant to offend us in some ways. If we aren't offended or challenged by Scripture, then we're likely making God in our own image. If we read a passage that challenges us and challenges our views on something, often we'll either change it to align with what we want it to say or we'll just reject it completely. 
Scripture must challenge us and we must submit to Scripture. And if we're offended by something, it often means we need to dig deeper into Scripture to find out what is God saying here and how does it affect me. Some people, he says, and this is the last thing, some people take doctrine in the wrong order. And I thought this was really great and something that I personally struggle with and I know others do as well. Taking doctrines in the wrong order is a condition, is a way of seeing and not seeing. It's taking sanctification before justification, which what I mean by that is if you subscribe to the Christian life of obedience to God's word, but you don't rest in the justification of Christ, the righteousness of Christ for you by faith, if you're trying to be holy and like Jesus without knowing that God already accepts you in Jesus, then you will be on a treadmill of works. You'll be trying to feel accepted by God by your obedience, and that will never cause you to be accepted. You must know that Christ loves you and will always love you before you then obey and walk according to his commandments. Christians, uh, as Keller would say, Christians obey because they're accepted. They don't obey to be accepted. Christians obey because they are loved and accepted in Christ. They don't obey to be accepted and loved by Christ. So those are things that lead to seeing and not seeing. Some of these things might relate to you. They might relate to a friend or a neighbor you know that you're praying for. But these are some of the things that can lead us to having a blurry picture of Christ. Now we'll move into the last point, which is what cures this condition. What, what cures this condition of seeing but not fully seeing clearly? Um, one thing is to not claim that you can see when you can't see. To, to not be quick to claim that your blindness is cured. In the story that we read, the blind man is partially healed. And he might have been tempted to say, when Jesus asked him, hey, do you see now? He could have said, yes, I do see. But he couldn't see clearly. And many people will come to a place where they like the idea of Jesus and his love, but they don't come to a real understanding of the reason that he had to save them. So they'll say, yes, I see, when they don't see. And in order for us to see Jesus clearly... We must come to a place where we can honestly see and understand ourselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this about seeing ourselves. He said, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore... Know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So we cannot see God clearly without seeing ourselves for who we are clearly. John Calvin is really famous for this, this line, he says, Nearly all wisdom that we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's how he starts his massive theological works, his systematic theology starts with this. We cannot know God without the knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's all of wisdom, he says. And then he goes on, to say this. He says, knowledge of ourselves is indispensable because from the feeling of our own ignorance and vanity and poverty, we can recognize 
the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, and full abundance of every good and purity of righteousness that rest in the Lord alone. So when we see Jesus clearly as he presents himself in life and in the cross and in his resurrection, in his word, we see clearly how much he has loved us and we see clearly how much we need Jesus. We see our sin. We see how flawed we are. But then we go to scriptures and we see how deeply loved and accepted we are in Christ. And so we're looking at seeing and not seeing. We're looking at the things that might cause this. And now we're looking at what cures this. And the first, and what I've just been talking about is that you don't want to claim you see when you cannot see clearly. Do you know yourself? Can you see yourself clearly? Secondly, this is an encouragement from Lloyd-Jones, and then I want to go into his story. He says, don't give up when you see unclearly. So many Christians and many unbelievers know that they can see Jesus, but they don't see him clearly. There's no joy in their life. They're, they're unhappy. They don't know how to live properly. And they're asking themselves the question, why can't I see clearly? They might say this is hopeless. And you might want to give up reading your Bible. You might want to just stop praying or stop going to church or whatever it might be because Jesus is just not clear. He's just not showing up. And so what do I do? And Lloyd-Jones would say, don't, don't give up. Go to the Lord with your discouragement, with your sense of not being able to see him. Because what saved this blind man, what gave this man his clear sight, was being honest before Jesus and saying, I see, but I see men as people walking as if they were trees. He was honest. Jesus promises in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so if you believe the Son of God came from heaven and sought you, a sinner, that he lived and died for you to forgive your sins, that he rose from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit to be received by faith, if you believe all these things, then you can believe that he came not to leave you in a place where you cannot see him clearly or where you're confused. Jesus came to make himself clear to be clearly known. And in seeing Jesus, we would know his joy and the happiness in Jesus. So wherever you are, whether you follow Jesus now and you see him, or right now if you follow him and it's hard to see Jesus, you can be and you are called to be honest with Jesus, no matter who we are. Come to Jesus honestly, Where, wherever you are, whether you see him clearly or not. Perhaps you're seeing Jesus clearly today, and you have this profound love of Christ that is giving you hope and energy, and you look forward to what comes next. The question to you would be, how can you help others see this joy? How can you help others see Jesus clearly? Would you be a guide? Would you be a teacher, a mentor? Would you be an encourager, an accountability partner to someone who is struggling, someone you know who is struggling to see Jesus? Would you do that? I came across this story of Francis Wayland, and I'm going to close with this story. <clears throat> Francis Wayland lived from 1796 to 1865. And during his day, it was common for Christians to have an experience of supernatural conversion. So if you became a Christian, you would have this supernatural experience that you could tell others about. It's very common even today. Uh, one day you would be changed. One day you would... 
uh, desire sin, and the next you would desire only holiness. And this is what he would see in his day all over the place. One day you're blind, and the next you see. Francis never had that experience. And so this caused him to doubt his salvation on and on and on. His whole life, really. Was he really saved if he couldn't look back to a point in his life where there was dramatic change? That's what he asked himself. He couldn't honestly point to a single moment in his life when he felt like his heart was really transformed. And he said this. He said, I have had many seasons of religious declension, which I think means when you're down in the depths and things aren't going well. He's had many seasons of going down and many seasons of revival. I've been harassed with many doubts of my state before God and have rarely attained to that full assurance of faith, which is the privilege of so many of the disciples of Christ. He was after and prayed repeatedly for assurance that Jesus loved him. And in his day, assurance looked like some kind of experience where you felt that you had been changed by the Holy Spirit. But eventually he became convinced that he came to faith through a gradual, reasoned reflection over time, over a long time, and that this too was a gift. And so I see in his story a similarity to the disciples. They didn't have a supernatural experience like the blind man did. They had an experience where they heard of Jesus, they walked with him, they misunderstood him, but they kept being honest with Jesus, and Jesus eventually revealed himself to them clearly. This man, uh, Francis Whalen, was a professor at an Ivy League university in the religion department. And he said that if he could not find assurance in his own experience, excuse me, he could nevertheless find objective, non-experiential grounds to know that God was real and had revealed himself in Jesus Christ and that those who trusted in Jesus could be assured of God's promises. He would have many students coming up to him, asking him, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that God accepts me? How do I know that he loves me? And he would simply say, believe the gospel and do what God commands you. Live the life of of one of God's children in obedience to him. Do the things that God says to do, not to earn assurance through good works, but to serve God with confidence, he says, that God has accepted them and that this is what God wants them to do. So I share this story because, again, the disciples have this experience of a long period of time of not coming to see Jesus clearly. Probably discouraged them. And you might be in a similar place. You might be seeing something about Jesus but not seeing it clearly enough. I encourage you to keep coming to Jesus, to be honest with him, to go to someone who knows Christ well and to talk with him about that, to not be discouraged by that. Because Jesus promises he will make you see clearly. That is a promise. The disciples won't see clearly until the resurrection. But whether it's gradual or sudden, Jesus brings sight to everyone who comes to him for it. So be honest with God about how you see him right now. Do you see clearly? Ask yourself if you see Christ clearly, and if you do, would you encourage those around you to see him more clearly by sharing the gospel, reading the scripture with them, praying with them? Let's pray. God, it's a great promise. Jesus, it's a great promise that you give us. 
And it's a great assurance that you give us that if we come to you in faith, you will never cast us out. We don't need a supernatural experience. We don't need to feel something change in our minds or our hearts. We just need to believe your promises. We need to believe that you came to die in our place for our sins, for our forgiveness, and that you live today. And that you're coming again one day to raise the dead in glory. And that we will be with you face to face. Lord, would you help us to see you clearly? And when you ca- would you cause us to be happy in you? Spiritually happy, joyful, knowing that you love us and that we are your children. We thank you for your word and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand in response to God's word and his grace with uh, hymn 481 we'll sing, which is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Let's stand and sing 481. Receive God's blessing and respond with your amen by faith. Be strengthened according to the good news and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory, forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.